Hey, guys. I'm super excited to start this episode off with more shout-outs for more new Patreon members. Karen Parker, Lila Diaz, Kelly Davis, and Chelsea McClendon, thank you so much. Your support means the world to me. If there are any other fans out there who are interested in getting podcast merch, early access to regular episodes, and or exclusive access to bonus episodes, just visit patreon.com and sign up to support the show for as little as $2. And let's not forget, Lone Star Law and Disorder is sponsored by Sentry Onsite Security and Private Investigations. Without their ongoing support, I wouldn't be able to provide you with the quality sound and material that I know you've come to expect. If you're in need of an experienced private investigator at a more reasonable cost, look no further than Sentry. And for an additional 10% off PI services, you can call 800-936-3596 or visit www.sostx.us. Just remember to tell them who sent you. And now, on with the show. Take it away, Jackie. Hello, this is Jackie from Houston, Texas. The following podcast contains strong language and graphic descriptions of violence and is definitely not suitable for all listeners. In other words, don't say she didn't warn you. Word of mouth, the grapevine, pillow talk, sharing of local intelligence, chewing the fat, back fence talk. I think you know where I'm going with this. All of these phrases are nothing but cute little idioms that represent just one word, gossip. The Oxford Dictionary defines gossip as casual or unconstrained conversation or reports about other people, typically involving details that are not confirmed as being true. Dictionary.com defines it as idle talk or rumor, especially about the personal or private affairs of others. No matter how you choose to word it, though, small towns are full of it. In a small town, everybody knows everybody, and there's always somebody keeping tabs on what everyone else is doing. I'm telling you, whatever juicy details are lacking in the local newspaper, you can find out from a friend of a friend. But everyone gossips. Very few people will admit it, but we've all done it at some point. And that's okay. We're human, and sharing information about each other is just what we do. That urge to share a juicy piece of news is just part of who we are. Some psychologists and sociologists actually say that gossip is not necessarily inherently bad and plays an important part in keeping our society connected and maintaining social order. Gossip is just social information, and we learn a lot about the social world around us through gossip. What makes gossip good, bad, or neutral is not necessarily the content of the information itself. It's how you use it. But too much gossip can be a bad thing. People often exaggerate what they pass on to make the story better or make more sense, or to justify why they're speaking about one another, eventually taking on powers of its own never intended by its original source. And if we're not careful, it can cross a line from innocuous garden variety conversation to something more potentially sinister and harmful. Gossip can turn into rumors that circulate without any clear information as to what is and isn't fact, leading to an erosion of trust and morale 
hurt feelings and reputations, and increased anxiety among the community members. Writes author Kath Rosenfield, in a small town, unexplained tragedy can only go so far before it grows teeth, sprouts sharp claws, and turns snarling on its own self. Before fragments of gossip become rumors, and rumors become suspicions. Before neighbors start eyeing each other with the mistrustful narrowing of oft-kicked dogs. Before husbands and wives inside the shelter of their own home draw their blinds tight and turn to each other, worrying at small bits of information and wondering who, who among their shrinking circle of friends might still know something he isn't telling. Early Wiley of Kaufman, Texas, was all too familiar with how the rumor mill operates in a small town. After graduating high school, she'd moved off to the big city for college and become a high-powered attorney at the Dallas County DA's office, and then moved back home as a single mother of two after a failed marriage, only to win a highly contested run for a coveted county judge seat. So she'd become accustomed to the whispers and idle chatter. When you grow up in a small town, however annoying or obnoxious the gossip, you get used to it, and you learn to let it roll right off your shoulders. That being the case, Early never could have imagined that any amount of gossip, any caliber of rumor, would result in a target on her back and an armed security detail on all sides. And the only thing more unbelievable than the rumors would be the truth itself. It, it was unbelievable how you just can't believe this stuff happens. But because it happened in the parking lot in broad daylight, eight 15 in the morning. Bold. I'm Krista, and you're listening to episode 13 of Lone Star Law and Disorder. Kaufman, Texas is only about 30 miles outside of Dallas. But you may as well have stepped into another reality altogether. It's quieter and more relaxed, slower even, with wide open highways. I grew up in Kaufman, Kaufman County, Texas. Kaufman, well, let me say this. I grew up but went to school in Kaufman, but I grew up in a small unincorporated area uh, referred to as Posto Bend. And uh, it's, it's a town of 500. I mean, it's just some neighborhoods. Growing up was, was pretty healthy and it was fine. And I had friends that you started kindergarten with or first grade with all the way up and knew them. Kaufman was a little place. Sometimes I, it was stifling because everybody knew every flipping thing about everybody. But after you got through that and you got to college, you realized, you know, my parents and our friends weren't so bad because there's a lot of crazy people out here had a lot of bad experience happen to them. So I graduated from high school. I went to Texas Tech. Dallas always was large. I mean, because in, in, in the 90s, Dallas was really hopping. And so the Dallas District Attorney's Office uh, probably had 200 employees. And you really would go in. Now it's a hard to get in, but there's 30 courts with at least three prosecutors per court and special sections with organized crime, white collar crime. And I worked my way up 
but I liked child abuse and I end up in the child abuse section and then I'm supervising uh, a kind of a child division court later and that got gets me 12 years in so I'm about 37 and um, I was married to someone else and it didn't work and I think I'm gonna go home and work but I but I didn't know what I was gonna do if I was gonna practice law that I was going to live it up. It just, it was life. Life took me home and life will take you home sometime. It's a humbling thing. And life took me home. And so there was a, a position for judge. It wasn't open. It was contested. But the guy that had the job, that, that was the judge, um, it was kind of rumored he wasn't doing a great job. So, you know, if you're going to pick a fight you need with a big dog, that's kind of good when you win it. I didn't know. They had never had a woman in any of the judicial positions. Now they had had a woman county judge. So I was the first woman judge in Kaufman County. There was a county judge, but like sitting on a court, I was the first African-American. God, life can direct you in ways unimaginable. And you're kind of like, how did I get here? Ten years after moving back to Kaufman from Dallas, Early had remarried and had held the county judge seat comfortably with no contesters ever since her first run. On January 30th, 2013, Early stood in her office preparing for court with her bailiff, Richard. We are in the middle of this big trial, but I think it was a Wednesday, I think. I was like, okay, what's, what's this week looking like? And we're like, you know, how much longer do you think they're going to go? We had tons of parties because it was a child case, and I was the judge, and I had written this big chart with all the kids' names and the parents' names. As she and Richard talked over a cup of coffee, a sound caught her attention. For a brief moment, she started to shrug it off. And I just remember, it was a good distance away, 100 yards at least. Maybe no more, no more, it wasn't two football fields, no more than 200. But she heard a discharge, and I remember thinking, somebody dropped something. And because it was cold in January, the window wasn't cracked or anything. They were, they were closed. But it was a nice day. Like, today was a nice day in January, and that happens in Texas. But then a rapid movement from the corner of her eye caught her attention. She looked out the window to see another one of the court bailiffs, an older, heavier gentleman, running across the courtyard as quickly as he was probably able to. She started to unlatch her window to holler down about what all the fuss was about. But then she saw the look on his face full of tension or was it fear I'm looking out the window and I see a man who I, who I know the then uh, bailiff to another court and he is running out as fast and as hard as he can man what is going on he he just he, you know you can sense things that there's something wrong, you can just you could just sense it. I didn't know for sure if there was anything wrong, but I sensed that. She looked back towards Richard, who then handed his cup of coffee over to her and attempted to call out on his radio. But no one answered his call. And that was when both he and Erlie knew something wasn't right. I just remember looking at him, and I, I don't I didn't say out loud was that I just said. I, 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 what was that? He, he looked at me and he knew it was something. Uh, I don't know if he knew that was gunshots. What I think he knew was that um, 
when he couldn't get on his radio, you know, I don't remember if he said anything or not. I just know that he left because he couldn't get a response to radio. Richard turned and quickly exited her office. I'll be back when I know something. Early opened her office window, just in time to hear, amidst all the commotion, man down, man down. All of the action was apparently happening down at the southeast side of the courthouse square along the sidewalk near the parking lot. Early leaned out to see if she could catch someone's attention enough to get an idea of what was going on. Moments before, there had been only the one deputy running through the courtyard. Now there were many. Before she could even open her mouth, someone shouted at her, shut the window, it's not safe. What I, what I remember was uh, also, it seemed that I cracked the window because I was trying to hear or if I could hear anything. And I remember because the weather was decent, it was cold enough that it was winter because it was in January. So, so I remember, and I had their names, like Deputy Ragsdale was the guy that was running. And I remember noticing that. And then I remember at the window, people telling me to get away from the window and then hearing them when I cracked the window saying, man down, man down. Early snapped the window shut and latched it tight. What is going on? She thought to herself as she walked out the door of her inner chambers into her outer office. Preparing to ask if anyone else knew, she looked at the faces of her assistant and other staff. Judge, they think someone shot Mark. Mark Hassey had grown up in Dallas. He was described as a good kid who was really just full of life. He fell in love with airplanes at an early age and earned himself a pilot's license in high school. Mark graduated from Texas A&M with a bachelor's degree in history and then enrolled at Southern Methodist University Dedman School of Law. In 1981, he graduated from SMU and went straight to work as a junior prosecutor in the Dallas County District Attorney's Office. He made a name for himself by taking on some of the toughest cases and quickly promoted through the ranks all the way up to the head of the DA's organized crime unit. In 1998, he left the DA's office to start his own practice, where he specialized in criminal law, personal injury suits, and of course, aviation law. The only thing he loved as much as his work was flying. And it was this love for flying that ironically almost took his life. In 1995, Mark was taking part in an event to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II. As such, he was given the privilege of flying an actual World War II aircraft. But somewhere in mid-flight, the engine gave out, and the plane crashed into an embankment. For the next few days, he hovered somewhere between life and death. If the doctors did save him, they worried about the extent of brain damage that he would suffer. His skull was fractured and his left temporal lobe was bruised. Once he began to recover, it was clear that much of his short-term memory had been lost, and he was left with wire holding his skull together and visible scars that included a noticeable hollow on the left side of his forehead. He would never again be able to go horseback riding or scuba diving or any of those other daring activities that he'd once relished in the past. But after two years focused solely on recovery... Mark decided to fly again. In 1997, he started his own business, buying, refurbishing, and reselling old planes. He kept his focus on planes for quite some time after that. But he never really could let go of law. 
He held on to his license over the years and handled the smaller stuff on the side, like writing wills and reviewing contracts for family and friends. In 2009, after doing some soul-searching, Mark decided to return to law. He'd always been best at prosecution, so that's what he decided to stick to. Still, the fast-paced big city crime of Dallas County DA's office just seemed like it would be too much this time around. Although he'd made almost a full recovery from his accident, the slower, more relaxed pace of a rural county would be what proved best for him. He found that position at the Kaufman County DA's office. A murder or two a year, a few dozen assaults, a lot of meth labs, DWIs, public intoxication, and stolen cars. In July of 2010, he began work inside the old rundown courthouse at the heart of Kaufman County. People who knew him said he was a super smart guy and very confident, but never took himself too seriously. He was the type of guy who still called men in the office dude and played practical jokes on the women in the office while simultaneously practicing his bachelor banner. At only five foot seven inches, he was a very thin man and was perpetually cold. So outside of work, he intentionally wore the ugliest sweaters he could possibly find, even in the middle of summer. And he enjoyed nothing more than landing in someone's office to tell his war stories of putting away the worst of the worst during his days at the Dallas County DA's office. Some said you could lose a good 30 minutes of your day if he found his way into your office. But people really didn't seem to mind. Mark fit right in and quickly settled into a routine. At about 8.30 a.m., Mark Hasse drove the same 30-minute route from his ranch in Rockwall to Kaufman. He parked his maroon truck in the same place he always did, about a block from the courthouse, and jumped out and hurried towards work, briefcase in hand, with no indication or premonition that today would be any different than any other day in Kaufman. Linda Bush was an attorney in Terrell. She'd had business at the courthouse that morning and was driving towards the parking lot. About a block away, she saw a man walking in from the parking lot. She hadn't recognized him as Mark at first. All of a sudden, a larger man dressed in all black with his face covered ran up to the smaller man. The larger man pushed the smaller man, and the interaction began to resemble a shoving match between boys. But then she saw the larger man pull out a gun, put it up to Mark's neck, and fire. The man fired a few more times, and then got into the passenger side of a light-colored four-door sedan and drove away. She tried to follow the car about two and a half blocks, but then she turned around and drove back to the parking lot to check on the man. It was then that she recognized that it was Mark. She started chest compressions. Martin Serta was a mechanic at Gomez Paint and Body right near the courthouse. He'd gotten to work about 8 a.m. that morning and opened up the shop. At around 8.40, he heard a gunshot that sounded dangerously close. He looked out the window and saw a person with a gun in his hand while another man was saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The man with the gun grabbed the other man by his jacket and fired. The man fell onto the ground, and the man with the gun fired again. He emptied the gun, pulled out another, and started firing into the air as he walked away. Patricia Luna was a mail clerk at the courthouse. She'd been in the workout room at the courthouse when she heard strange noises over her music. She turned off the music, lifted up the blinds, and saw a person walking slowly, shooting into the air. He was wearing a mask, vest and army boots. He got into the passenger side of a car on the street and then drove away. Patricia waited for a moment and then walked over to the area where she saw Mark Hesse lay dying. First responders tried to give Mark CPR while they begged him to just hang on and to keep breathing until the ambulance arrived. 
Six or seven times, Mark appeared to suck in air, but his breathing rapidly became more staggered and labored, and then stopped altogether. He arrived at the hospital with no heartbeat, and even as they raced to breathe for him, medical professionals at the hospital knew there was no coming back. Early's mind flashed back ten years before, when she'd heard those same sounds that her brain initially mistook for something much less sinister. In 1993, she'd been involved in a separate courthouse shooting at the George Allen Sr. Courts Building in Dallas when an enraged husband shot his wife and then turned his gun on himself in the hallway of the Dallas courthouse. The husband had come to the courthouse to respond to a protective order involving his wife and children. He fired one shot that hit a teenager using a public phone down the hallway, a second shot that killed his wife, and a third shot at himself. She'd associated those noises on that day with a filing cabinet slamming or being knocked over or something of the likes. But as the sound repeated itself and only grew closer, she realized it was the sounds of gunshots. In the 90s at our courthouse, you could walk into the courthouse easily. And in the 90s, it was a shooting at the George Allen Courts building. And it, what it was was a protective order that went wrong. And the man that was told to stay away from the wife came up to the, God, what was that floor? Probably on the sixth floor. And you heard that shot. And it's funny, again, that's what I thought. I thought the same thing flipping 10 years later. What was that? Somebody knocked over a ballgame? But I remember hearing that noise. But then you heard the next noise. It's not a rack because, you know, people are having automatic weapons. So it's a boom, and then it's a boom. I mean, it's it's in succession. But the second one, and then the scramble. So I'm in a, I'm in a secretary-type office with a hallway that's in between. And out in that hallway is where everybody stacks up on benches waiting to their cases called. And across that hallway was where the shooting happened in between that hallway, which was less than 50 yards away because that was the loudest noise. And, you know, you could hear the screaming in the courtroom where I wasn't because people were running. As she and several other coworkers huddled in the corner of the court coordinator's office, they attempted to call 911 over the excruciating sounds of distant screaming. But all they got was a busy signal. We had like four people in the room. And there's, there's one man in there, several women, the coordinator, me, lady named Donna. Um, and we were all hovered, you know, behind this poor guy. And, and we hear this person trying to open the door. Well, what we learned later, it was a kid that was there for a juvenile case. They got shot in a ricochet. It didn't hit his femoral artery, thank God, but it did hit his thigh. And he was just trying to get cover and help. But you don't know in your mind, it doesn't play tricks on you, but you go into flight fight mode and you're like, oh no, I'm not, we're not opening this door. And we didn't know it was a kid. And I remember back then calling on the phone and just, you know, Donna's calling the phone. People are now starting to have mobile phones. If you, if you were a private attorney, you couldn't get a call in or out of that place. It was just on lockdown. After what felt like hours, but was actually only a few minutes, the sound stopped. They cautiously opened the door to see blood smeared across the hallway floor. That was the first time Early learned that fear could make you physically ill. That shooting was the second courthouse shooting in six months, the first of which was in Fort Worth, Texas in July of 1992, 
and it resulted in dozens of state judges in Dallas stopping their proceedings and walking out to protest the lack of security in the courthouse. As a result, courthouse security throughout Dallas and other major cities was beefed up to include metal detectors and additional security personnel. But she was an attorney back then, and that was Dallas, with its ever-updating facilities. Now ten years later, she was a judge, and this was Kaufman, with its antiquated courthouse with few, if any, safety measures, where nothing like this had ever happened before. That shooting in Dallas changed everything. Metal detectors started going up. It, it, you lost that innocence even in Dallas. But when you get to Kaufman, when I first get to Kaufman, you could walk into the courthouse in 02, even though I didn't get on the bench until 03. But it just it took about 10 years later before we got real security in Kaufman. But that's okay because it's just like it's your courthouse. Y'all have security now. But it just, didn't, it just didn't happen. But now people know that it can happen anywhere. Early's staff made several attempts to call out and try to get more information. But the phone lines were overloaded. But eventually, they received word through her bailiff that would confirm their worst fears. I didn't know. I don't think it originally that it was Mark. But then I learned that it was Mark. Then I, I didn't know he was deceased. So it just trickled. There had, in fact, been a shooting, and Mark Hasse was dead. And then is the first time when we went back in the office is I saw Richard again. And so I hadn't seen him. I didn't get the information from Richard that Mark had been shot, but he came to tell me, Mark Hasse is dead. And, and he used the word he was assassinated. That, that always struck me like he already had, you know, like he's a public figure, even though he wasn't the elected. And this wasn't like a random, uh, not Berkeley, but a random robbery, somebody trying to take his stuff. He used the word assassinated, and I, I found that to be interesting. And we kind of all said, I wonder who did this. Or, And Richard shook his head, and he was off. The, the investigation was, was well, they were off to the races. And, were no spent shell casings at the scene, suggesting that the gunman had used a revolver. Revolvers retained the casing inside the cylinder instead of ejecting them. At the hospital, after the doctors pronounced Mark dead, the justice of the peace began his death investigation. He noted a large bloody hole in the left side of Mark's neck and other wounds scattered across his body for a total of five gunshot wounds. Crime scene investigators found grooves in the concrete that resembled bullet strikes. Following those patterns, they were able to find a few bullet fragments and collect them for evidence. They were tested and treated with chemicals, and those spots tested positive for lead and copper. A blood spatter expert concluded from the patterns that as each bullet struck Mark, he'd step backwards until he'd finally fall into the ground. Mark's identity was officially confirmed at about 1.25 p.m. that day at a press conference. Because of the location of the crime, jurisdiction fell to the Kaufman PD any orders came from them. We were called on a, on a man down, and he was walking to his car and was approached by an unknown suspect, and an altercation occurred. Gunshots were fired, and he is deceased from gunshots. He did tell reporters that he didn't see Mark Hesse as a random victim. 
He believed that Mark had been specifically targeted. After the police chief had finished answering the onslaught of questions, dressed in a black cowboy hat, his voice heavy with sadness and traces of anger, the district attorney himself, Mike McClelland, took over the mic. My name is Mike McClelland. I'm the uh, criminal district attorney for Kaufman County. The state of Texas, and especially my office, has suffered a devastating loss today. We lost a really, really good man. He was an excellent friend and a spectacular prosecutor. He will not be easily replaced. Anything that you people can do to accelerate getting our hands on this scum will be appreciated. I hope that the people that did this are watching because we're very confident that we're gonna find you, we're gonna pull you out of whatever hole you're in, and we're gonna bring you back and let the people of Kaufman County prosecute you to the fullest extent of the law. Some said it looked like a professional hit. Others felt it was too personal. Based on witness statements, the murder struck them as brazen, aggressive, and personal. Mark Hassey had been gunned down in broad daylight in the middle of downtown Kaufman. We were, we were shocked. It was shocking. That, that, that's a word. I mean, I had never really seen anyone just assassinated for doing their job that I actually knew who he was. The thing that happened in Dallas was a unfortunate family violence situation when we didn't know as much about family violence as we know now. And that was somebody that shot, came out there to shoot his wife because she was trying to get away from him with the protective order. Um, but those were strangers. This guy was somebody we knew, we worked with, we saw in the hallway. We had, might have had lunch with him, you know. On that same day in Houston, Texas, federal prosecutors announced that two members of the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas had pled guilty to federal racketeering charges, and among those they thanked in their announcement was the Kaufman County DA's office. Although they'd played only a very small part in that case, a Dallas reporter, operating off a tip from an anonymous source, later published an article speculating that there might have been a connection between the plea bargains and the murder of Mark Hassey. The story hit the internet citing, authorities with knowledge of the murdered assistant DA's caseload said he had been heavily involved in the investigation of members of the Aryan Brotherhood. The Aryan Brotherhood of Texas is a white supremacist neo-Nazi prison gang. It's not actually affiliated with the Aryan Brotherhood, though. It started after the original Aryan Brotherhood was formed at San Quentin in California. A group of Texas inmates asked their permission to start a chapter in Texas. The request was denied, but the Texas inmates formed it anyway. It quickly grew into one of the most violent prison gangs in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, responsible for numerous murders and other crimes. And according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, it's one of the largest and most violent neo-Nazi white supremacist prison gangs and organized criminal enterprises in the U.S. But although it's pretty powerful behind bars, it actually has little power in the free world. But once word of their potential involvement got out, there was no going back. News stories continued to mention it as a possible factor in his murder. News sources as far away as the Daily Mail in London headlined their coverage with the phrases like manhunt for gunmen as county prosecutor involved in Aryan Brotherhood investigation is shot dead. The truth was that as small a role as the Kaufman County DA's office played in the investigation, Mark Hassey had played an even smaller part. At the local Crime Stoppers office, more than $20,000 came in for reward money for information leading to the arrest of Mark's killer. 
Kaufman County Courthouse reopened on February 1st, but the DA's office remained closed. Police escorted employees to and from the courthouse. There was law enforcement on the corners and patrolling the streets in numbers that this small town had never seen before. State troopers, Texas Rangers, the ATF, and more. And the police presence was so crazy. When we got to work on Monday, they say it was crazy. They it, it was all out. I mean, because and that's a good thing. The law enforcement runs to to it to it being to assist an investigation. So you had local, uh, you had the rangers and troopers. You had feds helping. Mark's memorial service was held at the Terrell Performing Arts Center on Saturday, nine days after his murder. Armed officers were scattered throughout the balcony, with more outside manning the roadblocks, checking IDs, while snipers were placed on several nearby rooftops. As the days pressed on, press coverage continued to repeat misinformation from the day before and the day before that. Except now, there were new details included. Mark had expressed being frightened in the past year and had started carrying a gun. And then came the rumors about the drug cartels even though Kaufman County DA's office had played no active roles in any prosecutions of cartel-related crimes. But even while the rumors swirled, investigators remained tight-lipped about the investigation. Was it Mark's ex-girlfriend? No. Ruled out. A scan of his computer showed that he'd Googled Russian mail-order bride at some point. Could it have been the Russian mob? The FBI brought in behavioral analysts from Quantico, but they could offer little help because there'd been so few murders like Mark's. Agents combed through hundreds of Mark's files in his office in an effort to try and narrow down the suspect list. They didn't know exactly what they were looking for, but they thought something might catch their attention. The biggest stumbling block would remain to be the almost complete absence of any physical evidence. There wasn't even any video surveillance. Mike had recused himself from the investigation due to his friendship with Mark and Special Prosecutors Toby Shook and Bill Wersky from the Dallas County DA's office were brought in. In late February, Crime Stoppers received an anonymous tip via email regarding Mark's murder case. That email read as follows. Overheard this guy talking about a hit on that DA guy. Said his buddy and another guy did it, and got a cool vacation down South Mexico way. Free girls, drugs, and booze. They're supposed to be back next week in Athens, Texas. Didn't hear nothing else. Some guy named Bull, 6 feet, 240 pounds, 30 years old. Drove a blue Chevy pickup. Another dead end. On February 21st, the command center was dissembled. By the time March rolled around, it seemed like all had gone quiet regarding Mark's murder. In a small town, people talk, and they keep talking. But in this case... There didn't seem to be any more talk on the streets. And six weeks after the murder, it seemed as if life had gone back to normal in Kaufman. Investigators had run down thousands of tips and leads, to no avail. With no new leads and no additional evidence, and no one else talking, the investigation had begun to wind down. When Mark was killed, and then it just kind of flowed away... Leah, without saying it, I think, was like, was that just some random violence? You know, which was crazy, because you got to remember, you got someone committing random violence, and criminals do things that are typical and in their best interest, which is to grab your wallet and run. You know, if you're going to gear up and have on, 
you know, a ski mask and a hoodie where nobody can identify. You usually walk into a bank trying to take big money. And another thing that that I I know now, and I I probably knew then, but I just did put it, but it's something Aaron always hung up on is that people said there was a conversation, quick conversation before he shot him. So it was somebody that knew him. What they didn't know was that all the while, from just nearby, the killer watched and he waited. Mike McClellan was born and raised on a 600-acre farm with a family name that went back three generations in Wortham, Texas. His father was a World War II veteran. Mike graduated from high school and joined the ROTC program in college, graduating from the University of Texas in 1971, after which he headed straight into the regular Army Reserve. Mike seemed to like the military lifestyle. He was known as a man's man, strong and in control. Some described him as born to be in charge. He liked schedules and cleanliness and carried that through into family life as well after getting married and having children. In 1990, he enrolled in Texas Wesleyan School of Law to pursue his law degree and retired as a major in the military after 23 years of service. Cynthia Woodward was born in Oklahoma, the fourth out of five children. She was described as cheerful and jolly and was something of a second mother to her siblings, even the older ones. After graduating with a degree in psychology from Austin College, the homecoming queen married the captain of the football team in 1969. A few years later, in the midst of the disillusionment with the war in Vietnam, she and her husband joined a commune on a farm in northern Illinois, where families never locked their doors and children could walk from home to home with no boundaries. By the time she and Mike met, both had been previously married, Cynthia once and Mike twice, and they had several children between the two of them. In most of their views, they were total opposites. He saw things black and white, cut and dry, and was often known to criticize any views that were not consistent with his. But Cynthia saw things with much more gray in a world full of possibilities. She loved romance novels while he was a history nut. But somehow, they made the perfect match. Cynthia was quoted as saying she fell in love with Mike the first time she set eyes on him. He was her destiny, her soulmate. And for Mike, she brought out all the good qualities that had been hidden behind that tough exterior for so many years. They married in a small ceremony in 1995, Mike 46 and Cynthia 48. In 2005, Mike ran for DA of Kaufman County, but lost by a mere 60-something votes. He bided his time until the next election, working in the Dallas County Public Defender's Office while Cynthia worked as a psychiatric nurse at Terrell State Hospital. After a second run at DA, Mike was victorious and took office in 2010. Not too long after taking office, he and Cynthia moved into a sprawling four-bedroom brick home in Forney, Texas, Kaufman's most affluent city. New career, new home, new friends. They were the type of couple that held big annual Christmas parties, and Cynthia brought baked goods to the office at least once a week. On Palm Sunday, March 26, the McClellans went to church service in Terrell. Cynthia bubbled about how she'd already begun shopping for candy and presents to put in Easter baskets, and how she planned to hide the eggs around the house for the children of the friends and family she'd invited over for Easter. That Friday, the 29th, Good Friday, Mike stopped at a local gun shop in Forney on the way home from work. He had stopped to get some prices on new handguns, because he wanted his staff to be armed and ready if something like what happened to Mark ever happened again. While inquiring about the guns for his staff, 
The owner of the store asked Mike about the murder investigation, to which Mike responded, I think we're getting close. Mike had always disputed the headlines about drug cartels and prison gangs. He felt that this case was local, somebody close to home. To some people, it was clear that Mike had a target, and one target only. That night, with Easter just around the corner, Cynthia spent the evening assembling baskets for her guests with thoughtful care and chatting on the phone with friends and family, discussing the details of her plans for Easter Sunday. She loved to write clues to lead her guests to their baskets. It was one of her favorite traditions. With the table already set, Cynthia and Mike dressed for bed. Their motion detectors were still by 11.14 p.m., and the house remained silent throughout a night filled with thunderstorms, perhaps a sign of what was to come. At about 8.30 a.m. the next morning, Cynthia's best friend Leah gave her a ring on the cell phone to discuss the plans for Easter Sunday a bit further, but there was no answer. She called again at 9, and again at 9.30, but still got no answer. Out of worrying, she called another friend of theirs, who suggested that Cynthia may have gotten called into work. It wouldn't be the first time. Under this assumption, neither of them ended their call too terribly worried. At around 11 a.m., the friend decided to drive on over to the McClellan's home. As she pulled up in the driveway, she thought the house looked strange for some reason she couldn't figure out exactly what. She rang the doorbell at the front door, but no one answered. She noticed that the light on the ceiling fan was on in the bedroom that the McClellans shared. Then she noticed the newspaper still lying in its wrapper in the driveway, and both cars in the garage. She walked back to her car and called Leah back as she left the home to tell her she felt like something was wrong. Leah also began calling the McClellans' cell phones and got no answer. She decided maybe they'd gone to a movie and shut both their phones off. She called Mike's son, who also hadn't heard from him, and then Cynthia's mother and sister and daughter, none of whom who'd spoken to the McClellans that day. So Leah decided to drive on over to the home. She rang the doorbell, no answer. She walked around the side of the house, both vehicles in the garage. But then she noticed that Cynthia's car was pointed out towards the street and she knew that the McClellans, or at least Cynthia, hadn't left their home. You see, each night after Cynthia pulled into home, Mike would turn the car around and back the car in to make it easier for Cynthia to pull out. Then she saw the newspaper. Cynthia loved to read the newspaper. Each morning as she walked her dog, she would pick it up, and that really bothered her. Leah had a key to the McClellans' home, so she considered going on in. But then she heard the dogs barking still from their crates. Leah got back into her car, drove away and called Mike's son, but he asked her to go back and take a look inside. Leah called her son and husband. When they arrived at the McClellan's home, they opened the screen door and pounded on the wooden door, yelling Mike and Cynthia's names. Then, as they swung the door open, Leah dropped to her knees and began screaming. Next time on Lone Star Law and Disorder. That's all for this episode of Lone Star Law and Disorder. But before we go, I have to send a special shout out to a certain concerned citizen, the creator and host of Swindled Podcast. 
He took a little time out of his busy schedule to do some voice acting for this little podcast of mine. Swindled explores true stories of white-collar criminals, con artists, and corporate evil, rife with corruption and many other financially motivated crimes that have shaped our world in unimaginable ways, all in the name of greed. Check it out on the listening platform of your choice. If you're enjoying my show, why don't you take a minute to leave me a positive rating and review? It helps new listeners find the show and helps my little podcast grow. If you have case suggestions, feedback, or just want to reach out and say hello, you can find me on Twitter at Lone Star Law Pod. Join the Lone Star Law and Disorder Discussion Group on Facebook, or just shoot me an email at LoneLaw18 at gmail.com. See you next time.